turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, chapter 3. A man named Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, their two sons, uh, left the land of Judah, the city of Bethlehem, and traveled eastward into the land of Moab, on the other side of the Dead Sea, on the other side of the Jordan River. Once there, uh, Elimelech died. Uh, Naomi was left with her two sons, Malon and Chilion, and uh, they found wives among the Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, and the two of them were married. And a few years later, those two men, Malon and Chilion, both died. And so Naomi is left with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. She hears that the Lord has visited his people back in the land of Judah. There's a harvest. The times are good, and so she decides it's, it's time to head back home. Uh, Orpah remains in the land of Moab. Ruth accompanies Naomi back to the land of Judah, back to the city of Bethlehem. They're poor. And so as was the custom in that day, according to the Lord's provision under the law, uh, Ruth went out into the fields to, to glean from the harvest in order to collect food so that Naomi and Ruth could survive. Uh, Ruth ends up in a field belonging to a man named Boaz. Boaz comes out to inspect his field, to check up on his workers, to take a look at how the harvest is going. He sees this woman he doesn't know. He inquires. He discovers it's Ruth. He's heard of Ruth. And he begins to bestow a great kindness upon her and encourages her to drink from the cisterns, from the, from the vessels that he had provided for his servants. He encourages her to partake of their corporate meal. He encourages her to, uh, to glean among the workers. And he actually tells his workers to remove part of the harvest from, uh, from the bundles and leave it in the field so that Ruth could, uh, could find it. After this great day of harvest, Ruth returns home, shares everything with Naomi, and Naomi is overwhelmed by Boaz's kindness. Now last Sunday, in the midst of that narrative, we took some time to, to consider Ruth's faith. Uh, when Boaz sees her, inquires of her, uh, who is this woman that he is working in his field, discovers it's Ruth, he bestows these, this kindness upon her. Ruth is amazed. Ruth is overwhelmed and asks Boaz, why have I found favor in your sight? And Boaz tells her that he has heard of her kindness to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And more importantly, he has heard that Ruth has taken refuge under the wings of the Almighty, under the wings of God. What does that mean? It means, firstly, she had surrendered her home. She said to Naomi, where you go, I will go. It means, secondly, she had surrendered her, her people. Your people shall be my people. 
It means thirdly, she has surrendered her life. Where you die, I will die. Why was, why was Ruth able or willing to surrender all those things? It's because she had taken God as her portion. Your God shall be my God. Now, I didn't have time to mention this last Sunday. Let me mention it briefly now. Ruth should remind us of someone. Ruth should remind us of Abraham. You go back to God's call of Abram while living as an idolater in the land of Ur back in Genesis chapter 12. And consider what God says to Abram. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. There is an intentional on the part of the author of the book of Ruth there is an intentional parallel drawn between Abraham's faith and Ruth's faith. Abraham surrendered all. He surrendered his, his home country. He surrendered his people. He surrendered his family. He left all not knowing where he was going. Why? Because he had surrendered all to God. He had taken God as his portion. And Ruth likewise had surrendered everything. She had left her land, left her home, left her family, left her gods. Why? Because she had taken the one true living God as her portion. Again, let me repeat it. The parallel is intentional. The author is demonstrating, is proving what? That Abraham, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4, is the father of all who? Believe. The Muslim claims Abraham as his father. The Jew claims Abraham as his father. Ethnically speaking, so be it. But when it comes to the heirs of God's promises, when it comes to the heirs of those Abrahamic blessings and even the Abrahamic covenant, those promises belong to the true children of Abraham. Those who are of like faith. And that includes a Moabite woman, regardless of her ethnicity, regardless of her nationality, the author is making it abundantly clear she is a child of Abraham, an heir of the promise, of the same faith, surrendered her home, surrendered her family, surrendered everything. Why? Recorded in her words to Naomi, your God shall be my God. That's what we looked at last Sunday. And that brings us now to chapter 3. And I invite you to follow along as I read this chapter for us. I'm also going to move into chapter 4 and just read a couple of verses, but I'll warn you when we get there. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative? With whose young women you were. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Pause there. It requires some explanation. Especially if you're anything like me, knows nothing about far ancient farming techniques. 
but apparently a threshing floor. Once they had harvested the wheat or the barley, gathered it all together, they would put it on this hard, flat place and use cattle or other animals to walk all over it, trod on it, stamp on it, in order to separate the husks from the grain. Once that was done, they would wait for a little breeze, and then they would toss the mixture up into the air. And the breeze would carry away the lighter husks, the chaff, and the heavier grain would simply fall back down to the ground. Well, the harvest has been collected. This is what Boaz and his servants are now doing. And Boaz is out at the threshing floor. So Naomi continues in verse 3. Wash, therefore, she's speaking to Ruth, wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning if he will redeem you. Good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And so, into chapter 4, Boaz tracks down the other relative. He informs the relative of his own intentions, invites the relative to do, that is to fulfill his duty and responsibility. That other relative is not in a position to do so. And so Boaz takes Ruth as his wife. Look at what we have in verse 9 of chapter 4. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon, 
Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Here's the question. How are we going to approach these verses? Well, I've wrestled with this, struggled with this. Uh, You know, at least I hope you do, because I've said it at least a half dozen times, the book of Ruth, it, uh, it relates, it records the, what we might say, unspectacular or even insignificant, relatively speaking, insignificant details in the lives of, relatively speaking, insignificant people, demonstrating a supremely important truth. God rules over all. We have stressed that, emphasized it. We're going to do so next Sunday, perhaps the Sunday after. But we also have to acknowledge that that running through the book, there are Uh, sub-themes. There is teaching here that we can, to use a a metaphor from farming, that we can harvest, we can glean to our soul's nourishment and and edification. That's what I want to try to do today. I want to simply, I mean, if you think of these verses, if you think of this passage as a photo album, full of of pictures and, and photos of someone's life, I simply want to pick out three snapshots and derive a great truth from each one. Three snapshots, three verses, three expressions from which we derive three lessons, three truths that I trust the Lord will bless to our hearts this morning. The first is actually found back in chapter 2. We didn't have time to look at it last Sunday, so let's deal with it now. I'm referring to the expression that's found in verse 20 of chapter 2. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he that is Boaz, be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, that is the Lord's kindness, has not forsaken the living or the dead. The lesson we're to focus on is as follows. Listen carefully to these words. God's covenant love is exceedingly sweet when life is exceedingly bitter. Let me repeat it. I know that's a mouthful. God's covenant love is exceedingly sweet when life is exceedingly bitter. Notice two things in chapter 2, verse 20. Firstly, notice that God uses, Naomi uses rather, God's covenant name. Right in the middle of verse 20, may he, that is Boaz, be blessed by the Lord. That is God's covenant name, Yahweh in the Hebrew. Twice in chapter 1, when Naomi wants to emphasize God's power, when Naomi wants to stress the fact that it is God who has brought this calamity upon her, namely the loss of her husband and her two sons, she uses God's name Shaddai, Almighty, to stress the, the fact, to point to the fact that God had decreed this for her and that God had brought it about by His almighty power. He is Shaddai. 
But other than that, when you read chapter 1 and you get into chapter 2, but chapter 1 in particular, you will see that Naomi's preference when it comes to God's name is Yahweh. She uses it at least five times in chapter 1. And she uses it again here in chapter 2. Who is her God? It is the Lord. The, 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 The one who is from everlasting. This is the name by which God revealed himself, you'll remember, to Moses. When God was calling Israel out of Egypt, and when God entered into a covenant with Israel, he revealed himself by this name, Yahweh, I am. Why? To emphasize firstly the fact that this God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because this God does not change, he is faithful, meaning he accomplishes and performs and does everything he promises. And because this God does not change, and because this God is faithful, one who keeps his promises, we can be most certain we can rest in this wonderful fact that his loving kindness toward those who are in a covenant relationship with him is unfair. Changing. And so from Naomi's lips, there is this repeated emphasis, reference to the Lord. The second thing I want you to notice in verse 20 is that Naomi appeals to God's covenant love. May he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. She has said something similar. Turn back for a moment to chapter 1, verse 8, when she addresses her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Naomi, and the Orpah and Ruth, the middle of verse 8, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And so in Naomi's perspective, in her thinking, In her understanding of God, there is a direct correlation, relationship between his covenant name and his covenant love. You see, Naomi, despite her circumstances and despite her bitter circumstances and despite her her grief and her sorrow over the loss of loved ones, And despite her perplexity and her confusion and her concern for the future, understand this, Naomi has never lost sight of her God. She has never lost sight of the fact that he is the Lord. And she has never lost sight of the fact that his loving kindness extends to all who are in a covenant relationship with him. That is what sustains Naomi in the midst of tragedy. That is what supports Naomi in the midst of overwhelming sorrow. That is what strengthens Naomi as she faces a bleak future. A lesson for us, Christian, and please give attention to this. It is as follows. The Christian in covenant relationship with God feeds on secret stores of divine sustenance of which the world knows nothing. The world knows nothing.
to be under the covenant and to be in a covenant relationship with God is to know him as the Lord. It is to be certain as to the fact that he changes not, that he is faithful from generation to generation, and that if he loved me yesterday, he loves me today. I'm sure, I'm sure most of us have heard of the, the classic uh, Robinson Crusoe, penned by Daniel Defoe. Uh, Daniel Defoe lived at the end of the 1600s, early 1700s, uh, belonged to a dissenting Presbyterian church. He's actually, he's actually buried in London in Bunhill Fields, just a hip, uh, uh, just a, a st- not even a stone's throw from where John Bunyan and John Owen are buried. And Daniel Defoe wrote a number of works, many of them political, some of them theological, but he's known, obviously, for that classic, Robinson Crusoe, in which there's this man who is shipwrecked, marooned on, a, on an island, I think it's off the coast of Venezuela, for 28 years. And uh, Robinson Crusoe, he, he manages to salvage certain things, certain articles from the shipwreck, including a Bible. And he begins to read the Bible, and through reading Scripture, he is converted. And he says the following after his conversion. Listen to these words. I mean, this reflects Daniel Defoe's theology and understanding. I learned to look more upon the bright side of my condition and less upon the dark side. And to consider what I enjoyed as a man on an island 28 years rather than what I wanted. And this gave me such secret comforts that I cannot express them. All our discontent about what we lack appears to me to spring from a lack of thankfulness for what we have. A covenant-keeping God, the Lord. Let me repeat this invaluable lesson for us. God's covenant love is exceedingly sweet when life is exceedingly bitter. The second lesson I want us to focus in on comes out of verse 4. Now we move of chapter 3, moving into that chapter which we've read. Look at what we find there in, the verse, in verse 4. But when he lies down, Naomi here is speaking to Ruth. When he, that is Boaz, lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. The lesson. Let me give it to you right up front so you see where I'm going with this. Purity is a rare and precious jewel pursued by those who worship a holy God. I'll repeat it. Purity is a rare and precious jewel pursued by those who worship a holy God. This idea uh, on the part of Naomi uh, for Ruth to, to watch Boaz at the threshing floor and uh, watch where he lies down for the night and then to creep up secretly, uncover his feet, lie down at his feet, uh, waiting for him to wake up in the middle of the night. I have no idea where that came from. 
I don't know if that's Naomi's invention, that this is, you know, just sort of the, the strategy here of a very insightful woman, or if this harkens back to some sort of uh, tradition, custom within the nation of Israel or the surrounding nations, I have no idea. But what I do know is this. Boaz and Ruth find themselves in a very compromising situation. You're talking about a wealthy, powerful, I assume single man, and a young woman alone in the middle of the night in privacy. A situation rife with compromise and potential disaster. And as you read this love story, because it is, it is what it is, a, a tremendous love story, And as you enter into it and see this interaction by Boaz and Ruth, although don't, please understand, this is not the central message of the narrative, but but it it is a message nevertheless. We, We have to be struck by the purity and by the self control exemplified by Boaz and Ruth. You think of Boaz, wakes up in the middle of the night, and there's a young woman lying at his feet who invites him to throw his garment, his wings, over her. There is no one around. As I mentioned, he's a wealthy man. He's a powerful man. Here's a young woman. He has physical needs. No one will ever know. If they do know, who's going to question him, given his stature in the community anyway? He has the opportunity to do something for which there are no fear foreseeable repercussions or consequences. Oh, the man's self-control, Boaz's purity, is nothing short of admirable. He is a worthy man, as the narrative tells us. And he is a worthy man because Boaz is a believer, a believer. It's startling. We're going to get there. We'll come back to it in due course. When you, when you get to the genealogy at the end of chapter 4, and you go to the corresponding genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, you discover it's either the mother or grandmother of Boaz is whom? Rahab. Remember the story of Rahab? What's her profession? She's a woman of the night. A harlot. A Canaanite. But here we see the transforming power of grace, do we not? In Rahab's life, she was converted. She was a believer. And now the godly heritage in this man, Boaz, a believer in God, a follower of God, one who pursued holiness. Why? Because he worshipped and served a holy God. Now, not only is Boaz's purity admirable, but Ruth's purity is admirable. Again, I I have to believe the parallels are intentional. What transpires this night? I believe this is the intent of the author, inspired by the Spirit of God. As we envision this night in our minds, by some of the things mentioned and by the very scene itself, we are compelled to think back to another night centuries earlier. We're compelled to think back to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, of Lot's wife daring to look back when God warned her not to, and her suffering the consequences and being transformed into a pillar of salt. 
and then Lot making that voyage, that sojourn up into the hills, up into the mountains with his two daughters. The following drunkenness, the following incestuous relationship, and the result of that incestuous relationship, the birth of Moab. Startling. And we all know the history. Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has his sons. Joseph ends up being sold as a slave into Egypt. Eventually his father Jacob and his brothers follow him there. A band of maybe 70. And for 400 years they're in the land of Egypt, growing up into a nation. What's happened to this son of that incestuous relationship, Moab? He's traveled a little to the east, and he himself has become the father of a great nation. When God brings Israel out of the land of Egypt, across the Jordan, and they travel south of the, of the Dead Sea, and they enter up into the east part, of, 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 on the other side of the river of Jordan, wanting to enter into the land, they must pass through the land of Moab. And the king of Moab, the Moabites, Balak or Balak, that's his name. He knows who these people are. He knows the history. And so he gives a large sum of money to whom? Balaam. To do what? To curse the nation of Israel. God turns Balaam's three attempts at cursing Israel into three blessings upon Israel. But it's not the end of the story. In the book of Numbers 25, we read the following. As Israel is camped in the land of Moab, When Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. You read a few chapters later and you discover this was the orchestration of Balaam. Well, I can't curse them. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put temptation in their way. I'm going to make them commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And in so doing, they will commit spiritual whoredom and forsake Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant-keeping God, and turn to these idols and false gods. Friends, understand this. That is Ruth's national history and cultural identity. She is part of a nation given to whoredom. Part of a nation given to fornication. Part of a nation given to sexual immorality. And here she is, a widow, on the threshing floor, alone with an older man. Her self-control, her purity, is nothing less than admirable. Why? She's a believer. She has surrendered all. As summed up again in her words to Naomi, your God shall be my God. She has sought and found refuge under the wings of the Almighty. And as a result, she pursues holiness because she worships a holy God. I'm going to speak directly to our young people today, young men, young women. And I want to express something. I'm going to use the words of a preacher in another place at another time. But listen attentively, please. The mood of American life today is, if it feels good, do it. 
and to hell with your guilt-producing puritanical principles of chastity and faithfulness. But I say to you, young person, if the stars are shining in their beauty and your blood is thudding like a hammer that you are, and you are safe in the privacy of your place, stop, stop, stop for the sake of righteousness. Oh, let the morning dawn on your purity. Do not be like the world. Be like Boaz. Be like Ruth. Profoundly in love. Subtle and perceptive in communication. Powerful in self-control. And committed to righteousness. Here again is the lesson. Purity is a rare, and precious jewel pursued by those who worship a holy God. The third lesson we're going to look at this morning comes out of the ninth verse. And so Ruth finds herself at Boaz's feet, feet uncovered. He's startled in the midst of the night. No idea who it is. Who are you? He asks at the start of verse 9. She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. And here's her request. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, I don't think, I don't believe for one moment, we can view this this event and and those words specifically in isolation. I I think there's something larger going on here. When, when you think of Ruth out in the field initially meeting Boaz, and you think of Boaz's words to Ruth, he commends her, he praises her. Why? Because you have taken refuge where? Under God's wings. And then what does he do for Ruth? He begins to act as if she is under his wings. He provides protection. Don't go into any other field. You stay in my field, close to my servants. No one will lay a hand on you. He provides for her. Here here are the vessels with water from which my workmen drink from. You help yourself. Here's here's our our meal. You take this meal and you dip it in the wine here on the table. I'm going to tell my servants to actually take out of their harvest, leave it in the field. You collect it. It is kindness upon kindness. Boaz is acting. He is acting as if, he is expressing, let's put it this way, he is expressing his desire that Ruth, as she has taken refuge in the shadow of God's wings, that she might take refuge in his wings. The message is subtle. Perhaps for Boaz it's unimaginable that this young woman would have any interest in him. What possible interest could this woman have in me? He doesn't know what her intent is or what her desire is, but he is sending these messages. And when Ruth goes back to Naomi, Naomi understands the message. When Ruth relates everything that Boaz has done, when she relates what Boaz has said, commending her as a woman who has taken refuge under God's wings, Naomi jumps all over it. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the threshing floor, uncover his feet. He will awaken in the midst of the night. And here's what you are to say. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. In other words, 
let's see if we're getting Boaz's signals right. Let's see if this message is not so subtle. And let's see what his reaction will be. Look at his reaction in the 10th verse. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness in responding in the way you have to my overtures, perhaps, greater than the first. That is the kindness, perhaps, he has referenced there, the kindness she has shown to Naomi, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. You haven't chased after the first guy who's come along. You haven't swooned over that good-looking guy, that wealthy guy, that guy who you think is going to make your life wonderful. No, you have, you have understood the subtlety of my overtures, the message I am sending to you. Your concern has been for Naomi. Your concern has been to do what is right according to God's law. Blessed, blessed are you, my daughter. For you have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. But there's a problem, isn't there? Boaz is ready, willing, and able to be Ruth's redeemer. But there's someone else in the way. Boaz Boaz knows it. Stay there, spend the night, go home in the morning. I will not rest until this is dealt with. And he finds that closer relative. He expresses his own willingness to take Ruth and to take Naomi's land inheritance, that is to redeem it. That relative is unable to do so. And so Boaz willingly takes both as it's recorded, beginning in verse 9. You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Chilion and to Malon, in accordance with Leviticus chapter 25, as God distributed the land in, in, in the land of Canaan, according to tribe and family, in order to make sure that land never fell out of the possession of a family, there was this, this law instituted to, to, to raise up a perpetual name. And so if I had a brother who owned some land, that brother died, and perhaps his widow was left in a terrible state, or even my brother were still alive, but he got himself into debt and had to sell his land, it was my responsibility as his kinsman and closest relative to redeem that land, to pay for it. And then also in Deuteronomy 25, there was provision made in the case of a brother who died left a widow. It was the closest brother's responsibility to take that widow as his wife, to have a child, and to perpetuate the name of that deceased man. So that's what we see Boaz doing here. I have bought, verse 9, from the hand of Naomi, all that belonged to Elimelech, all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Verse 10, also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be My wife. Now, in Scripture, and I don't want to press this too far because we need to be very careful when it comes to typology. But in Scripture, there is this parallel between Old Testament and New Testament. There is this, 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 this paradigm of progressive revelation, especially when we come to the dawning of the New Testament age and the coming of the Lord Jesus, 
and hear the Lord Jesus himself say in reference to the law, I am its fulfillment. I believe wholeheartedly that is true of the kinsman redeemer. That in the kinsman redeemer we have an Old Testament picture of the coming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That I can stand before you this morning as a Christian and say that Christ is my kinsman redeemer. He is my kinsman. That is the doctrine of the incarnation. That the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became a man. He took to himself my manhood, my humanity. And as such, he stands as my relative. He stands as my kinsman. Because of the fall, I have incurred a terrible debt. I have broken God's law. I have offended God. I have incurred a debt, eternal judgment. Not only that, because of the fall, I have lost an inheritance. And I need a kinsman redeemer who can rectify what went wrong all those centuries ago. And in the Lord Jesus, I find one who is able and willing to redeem me. One who has paid the price through his shed blood, thereby satisfying that penalty, that debt, which I had incurred by my sin and disobedience. And not only that, I find a Redeemer who has purchased my inheritance. All that God has promised. Going all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, I will be your God, you shall be my people. That now in Christ I find myself as an heir of God, a co-heir with Christ. The Lord Jesus, my kinsman, Redeemer. His purity is now mine, however filthy I might be. His dignity is mine, however vile I might be. His wisdom is mine, however foolish I might be. His righteousness is mine, however sinful I might be. Christ's righteousness, as my kinsman redeemer, overwhelms my sin. His obedience eclipses my transgression. His faithfulness excels my rebellion. His salvation wipes out my condemnation. And with his infinite worthiness, he prays. He intercedes so that my unworthiness never comes before God. The Lord Jesus, my kinsman redeemer, the one who has the resources to pay my debt and purchase my inheritance. The one who is a willing kinsman, because like Boaz, he is compelled by love for his people. Now, as I conclude this morning, and as you think on this narrative, there is an, another very important parallel. And it concerns that relative who should have acted as a kinsman redeemer, but was unwilling to do so. That relative was willing to purchase what? Naomi's land. In other words, he, he was willing to get his hands on that inheritance, appropriate it, and make it his own. But he was not willing to take Ruth as his 
as his bride. Understand, friend, there is no inheritance unless we take Christ as our spouse. Unless we come to Christ and become one with Christ in what in Scripture is described as a marriage relationship, coming to him in faith and repentance, him taking hold of us by the Holy Spirit, unless we become one with him, there is no inheritance. One author has written, the day you gain the invaluable privileges of the gospel, you must marry Christ, the one who purchased, the one who owns those privileges. Why wouldn't someone take Christ as their spouse? I think the answer is simple. At times people stumble over their self-righteousness, don't they? They They don't think they need a Redeemer. They don't think they need the Lord Jesus. They're satisfied with themselves, who they are, what they've done, what they haven't done and therefore trusting in their own self-righteousness. At times, people stumble over their own self-love. It's simply their pride. What do you mean I need a Savior? What do you mean I need a Redeemer? At times, people simply stumble over their own sinful pleasures. If I marry Christ, what is it going to cost me? If I marry Christ, what do I have to give up? Oh, friend, understand, anything you have to give up, anything you surrender in this life pales in comparison to the privileges and the benefits and the blessings that belong to those who are married, knit to, united with the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, have you repented of your sin? I mean really repented. Do you see the repugnancy of it? And see it how, as God sees it? And despairing of yourself and understanding that there's nothing pleasing about you in God's sight. Have you turned to the Lord Jesus, a willing, able, ready, kinsman redeemer, and trusted in him, taking him as your all, surrendering everything that you might inherit all that he has purchased by his blood? Our Heavenly Father, We make it our simple prayer this day that you might stir our hearts. For those of us who are believers, stir our hearts that we might appreciate Christ's love for us and what it means to be one with him, what it means to be his spouse, his bride. And for those here who aren't believers, we pray that you would stir their hearts, help them to see what it is they are missing and lacking. Help them to see their sin and iniquity and transgression. Help them to see your displeasure with sin. And please help them to see that in Christ there is abounding forgiveness and mercy and grace for those who will take him as Lord and Savior. And so we commit ourselves to your care, your sovereign will and purpose this day. And we do so in the name of Christ. Amen.